We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Governments around the world are preoccupied with issues like mis- and disinformation, artificial intelligence, the impact of technology on the workforce, and more. But how did we get here, and what lessons can or should policymakers take away from history in order to navigate some of these pretty complex challenges that we're facing in 2023? Joining us today to discuss all of these issues and more is Jason Steinhauer, a public historian and best-selling author of History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. Jason is the founder of the History Communication Institute, creator of the History Club, a global fellow at the Wilson Center, and an adjunct professor at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. And we're lucky enough to catch Jason as he's recently returned from a five-week, six-country speaking tour with the U.S. Department of State. So, Jason, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. <laughs> great Caitlin to see you. and I go way back to at least March. <laughs> very we're, long history. We've become very fast friends, <laughs> which is what happens when you meet someone who is a kindred spirit and has uh, a lot of the same ideas and viewpoints that you share and concerns that you share as well. <laughs> I was wondering if you could start by telling us about your role as a historian working at the intersection of policy, technology, and society. In other words, what was your career path like and how did your background in public history bring you to research many of the modern challenges like social media or AI that we're dealing with today? So I'm glad you started with a small question that I can answer very, very briefly. (laughs) But in short, I'm actually something that we in the field call a public historian, as you mentioned. Now, people may be familiar with what historians are. Typically, when we think about historians, you might think about academics inside of lecture halls, teaching classes, grading papers, writing scholarly articles, and, and certainly public historians can do that. But there's a whole wing of the profession that works in places like museums, archives, libraries, government agencies. In fact, the U.S. government has tons of public historians throughout its halls. And that part of the profession really focuses on public-facing history work, whether it be museum exhibits or K-12 through curricula or any number of different things that interface with public audiences. So that's the world that I come out of. I began my career in museums. I actually used to work at a Holocaust museum in New York City. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My mom was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany after the war, migrated to Canada and eventually to the United States where she met my dad. So Holocaust history has always been very personally and professionally interesting to me. So I began working on Holocaust-related exhibitions uh, at a museum in New York City. I then eventually transitioned into archives and libraries. I worked at the New York Historical Society, the New York Public Library. I actually worked at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a little bit. Funny story about that. I was actually working in the Rock Hall one day, and my boss called me and said, come downstairs, I need you to help me with something. So I came downstairs, and in the back of his car was Jimmy Page's amplifier. <laughs> so that was kind of the, some of the stuff I got to see when I worked at the Rock Hall. I actually helped to create a museum on the North Coast of the Dominican Republic. So there was a small Jewish community of refugees that fled Europe and settled in the north coast of DR on the eve of World War II. And there's a small museum there that tells their story. So I worked on that. Eventually, I found my way to the Library of Congress. And at the library is when I really started to think about how 
history can inform policy and policymaking. Because part of my job at the library was to bring scholars from around the world to conduct research in the library's collections and then to get them in conversation with members of Congress and congressional staff. And that experience really opened my eyes to some of the challenges and structural challenges of getting historical scholarship into the policymaking process. From there, I became the founding director of a small think tank called the LePage Center for History and Public Interest. And eventually, I wrote this book, History Disrupted, and became a fellow at the Wilson Center and an adjunct here at the Maxwell School. The entire time I've worked in the field of public history, I've thought about how public audiences interact with information about history and about the past, whether it be in a museum gallery or on Capitol Hill. And increasingly, it became obvious to me that they were getting their information about history from information in their news feeds and in their phones. So I thought that there was a phenomenon here that needed to be uncovered and unpacked. What does it mean to learn about history from your cell phone? What does it mean that all this information about the past is mediated through these platforms and these algorithms and now increasingly through artificial intelligence? So it's sort of that nexus of policy, history, and tech, which has sort of brought me to where I am today and the questions that I like to think about. And your career as a public historian clearly has taken you many places, both figuratively and literally. As we mentioned earlier this summer, you traveled with the State Department to Belgium, Germany, Hungary, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, and Georgia on a speaking tour. And now every country, including these six, is currently going through some very real and also some very impactful societal changes because of technology. So what did you observe and what lessons did you take away from from your time there? So the reason the State Department sent me on this trip, I've been involved with the State Department as a speaker for a few years now. But once History Disrupted came out, the book I wrote really looks at how and why certain historical narratives circulate online the way they do. And it doesn't take too much of a leap to see how that applies to disinformation campaigns, because there are numerous disinformation campaigns, whether it be Russian, U.S., Bulgarian, Georgian, that leverage information about history as a way to shape and frame how people view the world, right? And oftentimes these narratives are purposefully misleading. So the question becomes, what are they tapping into? What mechanisms of the social web are they using in order to achieve success, achieve visibility, and shape how people think? And then what effects are these having on the ground in real people's lives, whether it be the war in Ukraine or the political situation in North Macedonia and Bulgaria? So that's why the State Department sent me on this speaking tour to talk about the ideas in my book and to see how some of these things are playing out on the ground. What I found actually corroborated a lot of what I suspected in the book, which is a couple things. Number one, history is being invoked continually and repeatedly in every, basically every single country and every single political debate one can think of. Right. And you marry that with some of the platforms and the way that they privilege certain types of information, and it can become a very potent political mix. As an example of that, you think about a platform like Facebook, for example, which privileges nostalgia in the newsfeed. And I have a whole chapter in my book on how Facebook privileges nostalgia in the newsfeed and why that benefits the platform economically and commercially in terms of keeping users engaged, etc. Right? And you marry that with political actors in countries who weaponize nostalgia and use nostalgia to advance particular talking points or particular agendas. 
plus the fact that people in these countries rely on Facebook so much for access to the Internet. For example, places like Bulgaria, Georgia, and North Macedonia, Facebook is the predominant way that people access the web and access social media. And what you find is you find that this actually helps to spread these nostalgic weaponized narratives across the web at lightning speeds. And these end up showing up in all aspects of society, and they have a huge influence on the political situation there. So the trip was really eye-opening to see how some of the things I theorized in my book are actually playing out in the real world in real time. You talk about this nostalgia for the past that you witnessed during your speaking tour in Europe. How does that compare to perhaps some of the underlying reasons for the disinformation narratives that we've seen here in the United States? Whether that's the big lie, for example, that led up to the Capitol attack or the birds aren't real theory that birds are actually just government drones that are spying on all of us or even like things like the comet ping pong conspiracy theory that actually led to physical violence at a pizza parlor. Yeah, I mean, some of these things directly invoke history and some of them do not. But I would say that, listen, nostalgia is a, in some ways, a fundamental human emotion. We are emotional creatures. We have memories. And those emotions and memories are tied to each other in very powerful ways. When nostalgia becomes politicized and weaponized, though, I think we've seen what can happen, right? Because what you're doing is you're imagining a fictitious past that never existed, and you're promising people that they can go back to that place that never actually occurred in the first place, right? And we see that in the United States, as you mentioned, where people glorify times like the 1940s or 1950s, the sort of post-war consensus, quote-unquote, the American century, quote-unquote, promising people that jobs will come back, that lifestyles will come back, that the middle class can come back, that coal mining can come back. I mean, these are all nostalgized fantasies about the past because, number one, the 40s and 50s were incredibly complex periods where there was a lot of civil strife, economic recessions, things like that. But number two, obviously, society has changed and moved on, and some of these things are not coming back. And to promise people that they can is deceitful and dishonest and is, again, sort of politicization and weaponization of the past. You also see this now in the Balkans. For example, I was told repeatedly where I traveled across the Balkans that there is a real strong, quote-unquote, Yugo nostalgia in the Balkans right now. This belief that life was better under the Tito dictatorship. Now, I uh, am not an expert in the Balkans, but I'm I know enough to know that life under dictatorship is not actually the answer to a lot of our political problems. But you can use this nostalgia for prior time periods as a way to hold up a strong man, advance anti-democratic agendas, shape political narratives, and help you know, convince people who might be disillusioned or frustrated with the status quo that there is some sort of mythical best practice in the past that we should be reverting back to. And those can be very powerful and very dangerous. Right. Yeah. The strongest manipulation campaigns built upon real emotions or real trauma or even a small sliver of truth like like economic situation is bad, but then taking that out of context and spinning it into something else. Now, I'm not a historian, but I do know that disinformation and misinformation has been around for a very long time. And I was wondering, why do you think all of these all of these conspiracy theories or all of these disinformation campaigns are picking up so much traction now? Is it a function of the technology companies like Facebook choosing to prioritize these nostalgic posts? Or do you think the problem is much larger than just the technology companies itself? Yeah, I think it's definitely a wicked problem that has a lot of different aspects to it. Certainly the technology is part of it. The ability to send messages quickly around the world at warp speeds to reach millions and millions of people in a day or two. I mean, 
when we think about comparing our current time to previous times, this is where some of the analogies fall short because we've never had technology like this. We've had, of course, television, radio, and telegraph, which all send things very quickly around the world. But the technologies we have now are, I think, fundamentally different. Also, some people have tried to, to argue with me that this is very, you know, not so dissimilar to the invention of the printing press. And my answer to that is simply, well, the printing press wasn't spying on you, <laughs> right? I mean, your devices now are literally learning your behavior, right. spying on you, monitoring you, right. figuring out how to make you more addictive. And last time I checked, my print book wasn't doing that. So there are some very fundamental differences to the technologies that we have now versus technologies that came around in the past. But I also think that there are some real political factors that can't be discounted. I think... When you travel across Europe, for example, you hear a lot of frustration with the political status quo and the sort of bureaucracy of Europe, the bureaucracy or instability of some of these countries in Europe, in Bulgaria, for example. Um, I hope I don't get this incorrect, but I think they've had like five elections in the last two years or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it's something similar to that. They've had a lot of instability there. And so that also becomes a breeding ground because people have frustration. They want solutions, and they don't see their politicians or political parties able to deliver them. And so then they revert to nostalgia. They tap into narratives that are angry, that blame people, that look for scapegoats, you know, whether it be the West or the Jews or whoever. And so that helps these things pick up traction and steam as well. And then I think the last thing I would say is that there's a real sense of instability, both in the United States and in Europe, that I've felt kind of gradually growing as our safety nets get eroded, as there's more job precarity, as technology makes skill sets obsolete and people wonder how they're going to survive in the future. And you feel it across the generational spectrum. In fact, when I was in Germany, I was talking to students at universities and they were worried that what they were learning in school was going to be obsolete by the time they left school when it came to technology, right? And so I think that instability and precarity also fuels some of these conspiracy theories and hoaxes and disinformation campaigns. And I think a lot of these things actually require not just technological solutions, but also political solutions. Yeah. And I think speaking of political solutions, at some point there is this tipping point where we've just seen so many governments come out and say, this is a problem that we need to take care of. And we've actually seen numerous policymakers propose steps to address fake news or other harmful content online. But some of these laws or proposed bills have been pretty controversial for a lot of reasons, including the fact that every country has different cultural and legal standards for, for example, what constitutes free speech or free expression or even different understandings of what harm is. So how have different governments addressed disinformation and do you believe that they've taken the right approach? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can be so bold as to even say that I know precisely what the quote unquote right approach is. Because as you say, the context matters here. And what what works in India or doesn't work in India may not work in the United States or may work in the United States. And the platforms are global, right? And that's also, if I have any sympathy for the platforms, which I have very little, but if I have any sympathy, it's because they are global, right? And so they have to find standards that work across the globe in numerous different cultures, in numerous different languages, with lots of different local and national complexity to wrestle with. You know, in part, we're all responsible for that because we all hopped on these platforms without really knowing what we were getting into and how they were using our data and what types of information they were privileging in the feeds. And we allowed these things to grow 
right below our eyes, sometimes with our own complicity, until we suddenly woke up and realized that we had created a massive problem with no solutions. So as much as we like to blame policymakers and platforms, we also have to blame ourselves, I think. Increasingly, my idea about what policymakers should or shouldn't do on these questions has come around to the idea of being counterweights and counterbalances. So what I mean by that is I'm not convinced that we can police a platform like Facebook, for example, that has 2 billion users all around the world. That to me seems like a really impossible task, both for Facebook and for policymakers. Also, I'm not even sure ethically it's the right thing to do because as we've seen in our own country, sometimes when people are speaking out against government and against forces of power, that's when we need to be protecting speech, not limiting speech. But I do think that government has a role in serving as a counterweight or a counterbalance to the technologies that are coming out. So, for example, with artificial intelligence, I don't necessarily know if regulating AI is realistic, considering how AI can be applied to virtually any field. But I do think that we sh policymakers should be aware of what is potentially going to be displaced by AI and build in counterweights to make sure that that displacement doesn't happen or at least happens at a pace that can be managed, right? And particularly, I think about something like the humanities in my field. I think that government should be stepping in to support and fund the humanities and history as a counterweight to all of the investment going into AI and technology. So instead of hopping on the AI train, actually think about how you can balance the scales and build up and support other aspects of society that may be harmed by these disruptive innovations. That to me seems like a worthwhile line of thinking for policymakers. And if I can get in the room with Chuck Schumer or other people who are going to be deliberating about AI this fall, that is what I would tell them. So if Chuck Schumer is listening to this podcast, Jason Steinhauer is interested in getting in a room. And actually, Chuck Schumer <laughs> knows my family because he actually grew up in the same building that my grandmother lived. So Senator Schumer... <laughs> call out, reach out to the Steinhauers. Falls in your court. Exactly. <laughs> I was really struck by an article that you recently wrote, which was that in both in the United States and Europe, and I'm actually just going to quote you here, you wrote that there are barely any jobs for those with history degrees and history programs that once had hundreds of students have been reduced to two or three dozen. Nostalgia erases the worst parts of dictatorships. The study of history restores them only if there are any historians left. And so when I read your article, this one quote really resonated with me. I double majored in Spanish culture and literature back in college, and I witnessed firsthand what you're saying, just how underfunded the arts and the humanities were compared to other majors like computer science or engineering. I remember actually back when I was an undergrad, I told one of my professors that I was thinking about getting a PhD in culture and literature, and she told me very kindly and gently, I'm going to be quite honest with you, Caitlin, there are very few jobs in this area. It's not going to be an easy path. So I want to ask you, how do we bridge the gaps? How can we better support prospective historians, not only in accessing education, but in also creating a pipeline to work in these fields? And on top of this, how can we create an environment where policymakers like Chuck Schumer and the technology companies are actively consulting historians and scholars to promote ethics and their use of technology? Another great question. That's something I've basically been devoting my life to for the last couple of years. You mentioned the History Communication Institute. So the idea of the History Communication Institute is to do just this. It's to find ways to bring history into these conversations and create these pipelines for historical thinking throughout society. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm teaching this class right now. I'm teaching a class at the Maxwell School on bringing history into policymaking. 
It's the express purpose of teaching the class is to sort of make this argument and to put this into practice. There are real structural challenges. One of the structural challenges you mentioned is just simply that the funding at the universities is going towards places that people feel like there are jobs. And so it creates this cycle. People think that there are no jobs in the humanities, so they don't give money to the humanities, so then people don't major in the humanities, so then there are no jobs. It's a vicious cycle, right? This is where I think government has a role to play. I think that in the same way, in, again, I'm going to use a historical analogy here. In the 1930s, we created a, a WPA and a, and a Works Progress Administration, and we put artists and scholars to work. I think the government could play a similar role. The, the government could actually build up a cadre of public historians and public humanists whose purpose would be to, you know, document what's happening with technology, document what's happening with our political situation, and make recommendations based on history. It's not going to happen, I think, from private corporations. I think we've seen that private corporations are ultimately just invested in their pipeline of workers and their bottom line. And oftentimes, humanities scholars and historians have to be in the uncomfortable position of telling corporations and even policymakers that what they're doing is wrong. And so people don't necessarily want to fund the people who are going to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. So we need to build an ecosystem. I think government has a role to play there. And in fact, I, I think I'm increasingly thinking that government may be the only actor who has the ability to make these mm-hmm. types of investments. But I also think that The sciences and corporations like the Microsofts and Googles of the world, I do think that they have a responsibility to think critically about what they're doing, Right. especially considering where all this has gotten us to in the past 15, 20 years. And if they're not willing to do that on their own, then we have to guilt trip them into it. Right. (laughs) And so I think we need to guilt trip them into it and say, listen, you need to have people on your teams paid a living wage and a living salary that can ask the hard questions that you may not want to ask before it's too late, right? Right, And even if you don't feel like doing this from a societal perspective, do it just from a company risk perspective, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to be the ones who are responsible for the downfall of democracy and society? I don't think you want that on your ledger, right? <laughs> so you can hire some historians and humanities scholars to help you suss that out before it's too late. But it's going to take investment from people who have the means to make those investments like government philanthropy and corporations. So there's individuals like us may be able to articulate and argue for these things, but ultimately we don't have the resources to move the needle. And so it has to be a society-wide approach. And we at the History Communication Institute are actively looking for partners who want to help make this possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great place to start. I mean, for technology companies, like you need to understand how algorithmic changes, for example, could affect the ability of bad actors to take advantage of emotions like nostalgia. Or when dealing with content moderation, you need to understand the cultural or the historic context behind the campaigns that are spreading online. And of course, we need more public historians. <laughs> um, I think that should be the main message that our listeners say should take away. Can we just have a billboard in D.C. with your <laughs> face on it saying, we need more public historians? That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that would move the needle? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe slightly. <laughs> I have an even more basic question for you. Just what does it mean to be a historian or a writer or a scholar in this new technological age. Popular new platforms, whether that's social media or chatbots, are changing the way in which people write, publish, study, and interact with information. So how might this affect legacy institutions like museums or newspapers or universities? Another great question. I would say that there's not one way to do it. There's not one archetypical 
vision of who a scholar is, what a scholar looks like, and what a researcher or a public historian or a public intellectual does. And that's a good thing, I think, because in prior centuries, in prior decades, there was, mm-hmm. right? You, you were a certain yeah. gender, you were a certain skin color, a certain race, ethnicity, and other, people's were, other people were kept out of these types of uh, right. environments you had the right, the right income, right. born into the right family, right. went right. to the right school. Right. So I think knocking down those barriers and making room for more people and perspectives at the table and in, inside the walls of places like museums and think tanks is a, is a good thing and should be encouraged. Now, of course, there needs to be the financial backing to make that possible. People need to be able to have a living wage which is one of the issues right now with public historians. Public historians are the average salary, I think, is somewhere around $50,000 in the U.S. It's a very poorly paid profession considering the importance of the work. And I think we need to value intellectual labor, and intellectual labor needs to be compensated and compensated fairly. How and what that looks like, though, I mean, it's, you know, one of the, I guess, benefits of these diversity of platforms that we have is that you can kind of mix and match how you want to do your public-facing work. You can do it in podcast form, do it on YouTube, do it in lecture halls inside the Library of Congress, or a mix of all those things. The challenge is that each of those things takes time and effort, right? And so doing a really good podcast takes resources and time. Doing really good YouTube videos yeah. takes resources and time. Building an audience takes resources and time. I mean, I've been only on my own for the past two to three years, and I'm still just sort of gradually building a platform. It hasn't happened overnight. So where is the funding going to come from for people while they build that capacity and build that platform, right? Is it through fellowships? Is it through government investment? When it comes to things like institutions themselves, like museums, you know, I think museums, again, can serve as an important counterweight to some of the technology that's out there. And we spend so much of our lives staring at screens on our phones. I was at Starbucks in November, and this barista was telling me that he spends eight to ten hours per day on TikTok. It's just, like, heartbreaking because he knew he was addicted, but he couldn't stop. Well, you know, a museum is a chance to actually put the phone down and look at objects in three dimensions and interact with people and ask questions about things that you see in front of you and what a novel concept. And I think there's still space for that in society. Maybe call me old-fashioned, but I think that there is room for these types of institutions to offer different perspectives and different ways of moving about the world and experiencing the world than one can just get from a screen on your phone in your hand. Yeah. And I just, I wish we had more effective ways to foster that throughout society. And that's also part of the challenge that a place like the History Communication Institute can take on. Yeah, yeah. I remember as a child, what some of my favorite memories have been walking around the Museum of Science in Boston, where I grew up. And I think here in D.C., we're really lucky to have a lot of great museums. Thank you again, Jason, for joining us today. I just have one more question for you, and it's actually a related question. So for more perspectives on history, technology and society, how can our podcast listeners follow your work? Oh, well, I am on what was formerly known as Twitter and now known as X. I am on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. I do have a website. You can find me there. But the principal place I would say is I have a Substack newsletter, which I publish biweekly, once every two weeks. And in there I do articles. I do sometimes some podcasting of my own. 
links out to other things that I'm writing and working on, things about like State Department speaking tours that I do, for example. All that's in the Substack newsletter. So that's probably the best place to connect. And it's also a place where people can reach out to me and send me questions and feedback and ideas. So that's just jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. You heard it, folks. Sign up for the History Club Substack newspaper, which is jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. So thank you again, Jason, for joining us today. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.